0: Lord, as we've already sung this morning, you are worthy of praise, you're worthy of glory, you're worthy of our love and our obedience and our trust. We recognize our need for your grace this morning, and we ask you to come and to tune our hearts to sing your praise, to keep us from wandering, to fix our eyes on Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that though we are weak and wrestle with remaining sin, and we are at times frustrated or discouraged by the circumstances we face, we know that we have an advocate. Our high priest is Jesus. And today he pleads our case and represents us before you, before the throne. So it is in that confidence and with that grateful heart that we come now and we ask you expectantly to teach us to strengthen our faith. We pray that you would receive all the glory this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think there's something in all of us, it's just a human nature, that we are captivated by epic contests, whether it be a combat sport like boxing, or whether it's a team sport championship, Super Bowl, or NCAA tournament, something like that. Whenever strength is matched against strength, there's just something about that that demands our attention. And in Exodus, the first movement of this story, as we will see, is very much a contest. It's a contest between God and Pharaoh. But this is no game. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of judgment and salvation. And this contest goes even deeper than what we see on the surface. This is really a new chapter in the story of Scripture, in the war between darkness and light, between devilish opposition and God's covenant purposes. And in this contest, we behold something. We see the glory of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the faithfulness of God as he triumphs over his enemies. This initial scene in in Exodus, it paints a pretty bleak picture for us this morning. One of oppression and cruelty, malice, even mass murder. A godless king is crushing God's people under his thumb, but against that dark background shines the faithfulness of God. We see his divine protection, his divine provision, and the triumph of his divine promise. Our text today includes three stages of increasing oppression against the people of Israel. But as we'll see, at each stage, God's purpose prevails and he continues to bless his people. First of all, in verses 8 through 14 of chapter 1, we see that God brings prosperity in the face of persecution. God brings prosperity even in the face of the persecution that they're dealing with. As we saw last week, verses 1 through 7 set the stage for us. The chosen people are a growing people and they're in Egypt. But verse 8 presents a crisis. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. With this new king comes a new normal. That he doesn't know Joseph doesn't mean that he's just historically ignorant. It means that he has no personal connection to Joseph. He has no loyalty for Joseph. He feels no debt of gratitude for dreams that Joseph had interpreted. No appreciation for how Joseph had helped Egypt to survive the famine and how Joseph had even expanded the powers of the central government with his food buying program. So this pharaoh feels no obligation to honor any previous commitments to the Israelites. Joseph, according to Genesis 45, had been like a father to the old pharaoh, but he was a nobody to the new king. It's interesting, many scholars believe that the pharaoh who preceded this king was actually part of a foreign dynasty, one that had originated in the land of Canaan. And so this pharaoh, this new king, represents a new, new blood, really, uh, there on the throne. After these foreign rulers had been driven, driven out of Egypt. And if that's the case, if he represents a new dynasty that had replaced these foreign invaders who had ruled over Egypt for several generations, then not only does this king have no reason to honor any previous arrangements personally, but he also likely would have harbored deep suspicion of outsiders, He would have harbored both a hatred and a fear of foreigners that were growing in their midst. But regardless of the reason, what's clear is that as this new Pharaoh considers his kingdom, he views these Israelites as a threat. Look in verses 9 through 11. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. This Pharaoh has a concern. These people are too many. And they're in danger of becoming stronger than we are. And that is a military threat. The land of Egypt was somewhat immune to the famines that would ravage that region. They had a river that would flood regularly, and it meant that they always had water for their crops. They had irrigation. And so, as you can imagine, they didn't want to lose their ground. They didn't want to be overrun by outsiders. And this growing power in their midst was a concern. So they viewed the Israelites no longer as guests, but as a threat to be managed. And this pharaoh has a shrewd strategy. That's a key word. That word shrewdly in verse 10. Let us deal shrewdly with them. This king is a thinker. And he decides, you know what? We're going to redefine their social status. No longer are they going to be contracted herdsmen who have a deal with our our government. Rather, we're going to make them conscripted labor. We're going to reduce their influence. We're going to reduce their potential. In fact, we can even break up some of their families. We'll send the men off to these cities to work. That would limit their reproduction. Let's, and let's work them into the ground. Let's weed out the old and the sick and the frail by pushing them to their limit. This shrewdness reveals a pragmatic man. He's driven by fear, but also by greed. He's willing to do anything to get the results that he wants. And the results that he wants is to neutralize a threat, but still benefit economically from the presence of these people He decides to enslave them. But... This plan, according to verse 12, backfires. It says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Pharaoh's approach failed to remedy his concern. The more they oppressed them, the more they grew, and this must have completely confused the pagan Egyptians sitting on this side of history, we look back and we smile as we read this because we understand exactly what's going on. It makes perfect sense to us. We see that God is at work, that he's responsible for this surprising fruitfulness. He's creating something new, a new nation. So we see the echoes of the creation mandate of being fruitful and multiplying. No policy of Pharaoh's administration can frustrate God's designs. And this is not the last time that Pharaoh and God will square off. And it's not the last time that Pharaoh's plans will fail while God's promise triumphs. I will make you a great nation, God had said, and I will bless you. Your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. And there's nothing Pharaoh can do about that. So what's the result of all this? Well, verse 12 tells us that the Egyptians' concern had actually worsened and turned to dread. They dreaded these people. They're realizing this is getting bigger than what we can handle, and what we're doing isn't working, and the fear level is increasing. So what do they do? Well, they double down, more of the same, verses 13 and 14. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The text here gives us repeated and colorful descriptions of this cruelty. What these people experienced is not something you can just sum up with, yeah, they were oppressed. No, he gives us description upon description of what was happening to these people to make sure that we understand how badly things were going in Egypt. In fact, the bitterness of their suffering would be forever commemorated in the Passover. The bitter herbs that they were to eat were to remind them of the bitterness of their suffering in Egypt. That's sobering, isn't it? To realize that even though God was blessing them, their suffering is increasing. And they are growing in their need for deliverance. They need a new master. They need a good master. You know, often the favor of God that we experience and the hatred of the world go hand in hand. To experience God's blessing sometimes means that we experience an increased opposition from those who hate God. We need to beware of a worldly expectation of prosperity. We need to make sure that we don't measure blessing by how well things go for us physically or financially or what our social standing is in the world. It's a truth that all God's saints need to know that suffering and grace often come packaged together. Like Israel, we may experience God's blessing and the fulfillment of God's promises, but at the same time be seen by the world, the unbelieving world, as a threat to be managed. But if and when this happens, we can know this, that God's purposes will prevail, and we can look to him to prosper us in the ways that matter, even in the face of opposition. As has often been said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more the enemy oppresses, the greater God's purposes accelerate. In fact, God even uses opposition to form us into the people that he wants us to be. Opposition, oppression, it's no threat to God's purposes. It's just another tool in his sovereign hand. God brings prosperity in the face of persecution. But as the story continues, we see that God also blesses those who fear him in the face of temptation. He blesses those who fear him in the face of temptation. Pharaoh sees that his plan isn't working, so now he implements phase two of his strategy, his strategy to control this growing nation. And he speaks to two women, the Hebrew midwives. Verses 15 and 16 tell us, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah. And the other, Puah. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Shiprah and Puah, these two women, were likely the head midwives. Um, as we'll see later in verse 19, they seem to refer to other midwives. So it makes sense that they're sort of the, the governing body of the, the midwife union or whatever it was. In those days. And these women are summoned to speak to the king. So imagine that meeting. Imagine that meeting. And what they are told places them in a grave dilemma kill the baby boys or risk defying the most powerful man in the world. And again, there's two levels to what's happening here. At one level, you have a paranoid and prejudiced king who's trying to control the population, he's willing to do anything to get the job done. But at a deeper level, remember, remember the story that began in Genesis, that Satan is at war with God. And at every point in history, Satan's goal has been to stamp out the chosen line. Remember the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent thought, not if I crush him first. So to wreck God's plan, Satan is really the one behind the curtain, I think, pushing the buttons. It's hard not to hear the whisper of the serpent in the words to the king, the words of the king, kill the son. So will the women, like Eve before them, be pulled into Satan's scheme? Not this time. These two women refuse. And they refuse for a reason. It's because they fear God. Look in verse 17, it says, But despite what the king says, despite his authority, despite the direct command given to them, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. These women, Shipra and Puah, they, they respect human life. They understand it is sacred to God. As God had told Noah, whoever shed, sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God takes it seriously when people made in his image are wrongfully killed. And in addition to that, They refused to sabotage God's covenant plan to grow Israel into a great nation. They knew that God intended to make these people into an innumerable multitude, and they weren't about to stand in God's way. They fear God. Now, I want you to notice that this is actually the first time in this narrative that God has been mentioned. And I think that's significant, because it makes this statement that they fear God all the more remarkable. These people were in Egypt, and they had been for centuries. They were suffering greatly at the hands of their taskmasters. And as readers, we can see that God's working behind the scenes, but for them, the people with boots on the ground, it would have been very easy to think, where is God? Has he abandoned us? Has God forgotten us? He said he would bless those who bless us and curse those who curse us, but it doesn't seem like that's what's happening right now. When you look at it that way, these two women are an amazing example of faith, aren't they? God may have seemed distant and uninvolved, but they feared him regardless. Their world was crumbling around them, but their faith was intact. Pharaoh seems a bit exasperated, so he calls them in to question them. In verse 18, it says, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. I'm not going to comment too much on this, but any of you moms know that when you start criticizing other people and their birth stories, it can get a little bit hairy, right? The, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. You know, a lot of ink has been spilled on this little part of Exodus 1, debating the ethics of their conversation with Pharaoh. Did these women lie to the king? And did God approve of that? Well, I'm not going to get all into the, into the weeds on that. Um, there's somebody in our church who told me he wrote a paper on it, so you can just read his paper another time. Um, but I'm not convinced that these, pe- that these two women actually lied. I think it's very possible to take their statement at face value. It seems that God blessed these Hebrew women so that they don't need help giving birth. They're just getting after it and getting it done. And it also seems that these two midwives and those who were under them were conveniently showing up late every time. Look at that, the traffic, the traffic couldn't get there, you know, I lost track of time, had a flat tire, a mule broke his leg, whatever it may be, I just couldn't get there in time. I'm sorry, King, but I was late. I think it's plausible. It's plausible that they're actually not lying, and this is just sort of what was happening. If they did lie, and I could be wrong on this, I don't think they did, but if they did lie, just to be clear, there's not a comment here in the text on the rightness or wrongness of it. You have to go other places to answer that question. But here's the point. Pharaoh dealt shrewdly with Israel. Remember that? He determined to deal shrewdly with Israel. And now these women are dealing shrewdly with him. He's getting a taste of his own medicine. And in the process, they even get in a little jab. Yeah, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. There's really a theological truth to that statement as well. Perhaps they were mocking him. Perhaps they were conveniently avoiding the truth. But also, we should be reminded that these people, the children of Israel, are indeed special. They're not like the other nations. And it's not because of anything in them, it's because of God's grace. Because he has chosen them to be the vehicle through which he will accomplish his plans. The vehicle through which he will bring blessing to the world. They are indeed not like the Egyptian women in more ways than one. So keep in mind, the emphasis here is not on just what they said. The emphasis is on what they did. They did not kill the baby boys, and it's because they feared God. And notice the results. Verses 20 and 21 tell us, God blesses them. God dealt well with the midwives. And it says in verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. In addition to this experience of blessing, Notice that these two women are forever engraved in Israelite history. And not just in Israelite history, but among all who believe in God, who read his word, their names are written for eternity. You know what's amazing is the name of this Pharaoh is actually never mentioned throughout the entire book. He goes down in history anonymous. But these two women are heroes. And the author shows great care to name them and to give them honor. They go down in history for their courage and for their faith because they feared God. So they're blessed. But Pharaoh's frustrated. Phase two isn't working. So now he has to implement stage three in his efforts to control the population. And stage three is going to be just another opportunity for God to show himself faithful. In verse 22 of chapter one, all the way through verse 10 of chapter two, we find that God blesses faith in the face of impossible situations. He blesses faith in the face of impossible situations. Verse 22 of chapter one says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So the Hebrew midwives won't do his dirty work for him, so now he deputizes the Citizens of Egypt, the whole nation is now commanded you're to throw male children of the Israelites into the Nile River. So no longer are the Hebrew midwives in a position to protect the children of Israel. Now it's up to God alone. So what does God do? God does what he often does throughout redemptive history. He raises up a child. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, "Now." a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. Now this itself is surprising. Surprising that God chooses to work through people from the tribe of Levi. If you remember the ending of Genesis, um, Levi did not receive much commendation among the twelve, the twelve sons of Israel. Along with his brother Simeon, Levi had deceived the sons of Shechem. They had tricked them into all being circumcised at the same time. Then they'd come in and slaughtered all of them while they were still recovering. And they did this to get revenge for how they'd abused their sister. And so Jacob, on his deathbed, as he's blessing all his sons, he says this about Simeon and Levi, Genesis 49.5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. But isn't it just like God to raise up salvation from the place where it is least expected? Why does God do it that way? Why does he choose a deliverer from Levi? Why does he choose the youngest brother, the smallest, the shepherd boy, to be the king? Time and time again, we see this pattern. Why does God thin out Gideon's army? Because there's too many of them. Because he loves to work in surprising and unexpected ways so that he gets all the glory. So it's clear that his power is what has made the difference. God delights to redeem broken vessels and use them for his glory. And so here we see that God's grace turns shame into honor, cursing into blessing. True, Levi would never inherit any land in Canaan. But God would raise up Moses and Aaron through the tribe of Levi and would designate this tribe to be the priestly tribe, the ones who had the privilege of serving in the tabernacle and later the temple. So a son is born from the tribe of Levi, and his mother keeps him. She doesn't throw him in the Nile. woman conceived, verse 2, and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Three months keeping your baby quiet. Three months of not being able to be seen in public with this child. Three months of hoping that if anyone heard him or saw him, they would assume he was a baby girl. And not a baby boy. But eventually she reaches the point where she cannot hide him any longer. And so she does something that seems strange to our ears. Something that is shocking. That's completely foreign. But it would have made sense to them. I'll explain why in a moment. Verse 3 says, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds. By the riverbank And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. There's many scholars who've noted the parallels between this story of the baby that many of us know is Moses, this baby in the basket placed in the reeds in the Nile river. There's parallels between this story and several ancient legends, especially the Akkadian legend about the king' Sargon. The tale of Sargon was a tale of an illegitimate baby who was placed in a basket, found in the river, and rose from dust to glory. An unlikely hero who was lifted by the gods from obscurity to serve and rule as a king. And there are some who are cynical, who would say that the Bible copied this story to try and legitimize Moses. But a better explanation, the right one, Is that since this legend was written after Moses, it's a question of who's copying who. And then, secondly, the fact that this legend and the story of Moses, even if they're not related, it shows us that there was some sort of ancient practice here that was known to different people. In the case of an unwanted child, people would often abandon that child to the forces of nature, supposing that if the gods somehow wished for this child to live, then fortune would befall them. And in a pagan sense, This was just a fatalistic way to get rid of an illegitimate child or an unwanted child. But allow yourself to not feel fully responsible. You're entrusting it to the gods or to fate or whatever. But in the case of this daughter of Levi, one from the covenant people of Israel, this is actually a statement of her faith. Not just in these distant gods, but in the God of promise, the faithful God. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us as much. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict." Moses' parents were people of faith. So she is not abandoning her son. She's not leaving him to die of exposure. She did want this child. But she was unable to keep him, so she did the only thing she could do and entrusted her son to the sovereign care of her God. This little basket, in some ways, reminds us of what God has already done. There's parallels here to the story of Noah in the prequel to Exodus, the book of Genesis. The same word for ark is used here. It's translated as basket. Just like the ark, the basket is sealed with pitch and tar. And God preserves his people in the water. And a new beginning comes through the passengers of the ark. God will do a new thing through the infant in this basket, just like he did a new thing through Noah back in Genesis 6-9. through But the basket also contains important foreshadowing here of what God will do in the future. What he will do not just with a child, but with a nation. What God does for this baby, he can and will do for Israel. He is able to preserve this child in the reeds and able to bring a people through the Red Sea, which is also called the Reed Sea. And just as the child would go from slave to royalty through adoption, so also Israel will go from slaves in Egypt to adopted collectively as God's own son. So what happens to this basket? Well, the baby is found all right, but found by who else? but Pharaoh's own daughter. With his sister watching on, we find in verse 5, it says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. Now, this is a shocking turn of events. Of all the people to find this baby, Of all the people who might perhaps have compassion, she seems to be the least likely. She has every reason to dispose of this child. But just as God has pity on the nation, she has pity on this child and determines to keep him. Verse 6. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Ironically, Pharaoh this whole time has been concerned about the baby boys. But it's really the women in this story who foil his plan. The Hebrew midwives won't cooperate. His own daughter takes this baby in who would grow up to be the deliverer of Israel. Miriam works it out with a clever suggestion so that the child's own mother can raise him and get paid for it. If anyone would have approached her about the legality of having a baby boy, Moses' mother could have said, hey, listen, I have royal authorization, hands off. This child belongs to the daughter of the king. What a blessing on her for her faith. God saw, God heard, and God acted. It's hard for us to think that Moses' mother could have dreamed of a better outcome than what? And this section ends with Pharaoh's daughter adopting Moses and giving him his name, Moshe. It has the meaning of he who draws out, the one who draws out. And it contains a hint of what this child will one day do. Moses has been drawn out of the water, but will one day grow up to draw God's people out of Egypt through the water and lead them into a new era of freedom. At every step of this story, At every stage, Pharaoh's plans are foiled, and God's people are blessed. Pharaoh oppresses them, they multiply. He commands the midwives to kill, they refuse and are blessed. He commands all the male infants to be thrown into the Nile, and then his own daughter adopts a baby out of the river who would one day grow up and lead Israel to freedom. Despite opposition to Pharaoh's plan, God always upholds his promise. He preserves his people. And he not only blesses them in the face of oppression, but raises up a deliverer in the most surprising of ways. In a way that will give him great glory. So God continues his plan to fulfill his promise. And friends, this is not just a fascinating story. This tells us a lot about the God that we worship. He is sovereign. He is higher Than kings of this earth. He rules over all, and he is not a distant sovereign. He works in and through history, real circumstances, the daily challenges and struggles that we face. He's not some stoic, uninvolved God. He is intimately involved in, as the Apostle Paul says, working all things together for good. And this God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. He always accomplishes his purposes. And he does it in the most surprising of ways. For those of us who know Christ, what should be our response to these truths? I just want to give you three quick takeaways from this story. First of all, we need a faith that waits on God even when we can't see his hand. If you read this story, it should help to teach you that lesson. Trust God even when it seems like he's not doing anything. Even when you can't tell what the outcome is going to be. We wait on the Lord. Though the people were 400 years in Egypt, God was working quietly behind the scenes to raise up a deliverer, to bring them out and fulfill his promise, to bring blessing through them to all the families of the earth. Friends, we need to trust God even when it seems like nothing's happening, or even when it seems like things are moving backwards. We trust him even when we can't see his hand. We need a faith that waits on God, even when we can't see. Secondly, we need a faith that fears God above all. The fear of God shapes our ethics. The fear of God drives obedience. And like the midwives, we are called to fear God above all. Proverbs tells us that the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Even when the threat is grave, even when it seems like you might lose everything, even when the cost is high, we fear God, period. Full stop. No exceptions. Fear God above all. Trusting that he is able to bless even in the midst of danger. He is able to deliver us from evil. The fear of God is essential for all who follow Christ. We fear him and him alone. We need a faith that fears God above all. And then third, we need a faith that trusts God in the face of the impossible. The story of Moses in the river seems like an impossible situation. And then it gets more impossible when Pharaoh's daughter finds him. But as we read this story, it should fill us with a sense of expectancy that we serve a God who does the impossible. A God who will later even reverse death itself. Raising up his son from the grave. We can trust God, even in impossible situations. We can look confidently to him, expecting that he will do what he has said he will do. We can be confident his purpose will prevail. So we trust him, even in the face of the impossible. This story and what will follow in the familiar chapters that come next, it gives us abundant reasons to wait on God and to fear God and to trust God. He is faithful. He is sovereign. He's working all things together for good. My prayer for this church is that our faith would be anchored deeply in these truths as we today wait on the Lord, trust in the Lord, and seek to fear Him above all. Father in heaven, we are amazed to see your glory on display in this stunning story. We're sobered to recognize that often your calling for your people is to walk directly through oppression and adversity and even suffering that you frequently allow us to face seemingly impossible situations. Lord, we are comforted and encouraged this morning to be reminded that you are sovereign and that nothing can stop or thwart your plan. Lord, strengthen our faith, deepen our faith that we might fear you and trust you and obey you. And Lord, just as you used Moses to accomplish your purposes in Egypt, just as you used Israel to raise up a Messiah, we pray that you would use us. Use us to tell the world about this God who rules over all. Use us to show the world what it looks like to trust in God and to fear him above all. Lord, make us distinct and unique, salt and light in a world that is dark and decaying, so that you might be glorified not only through the stories of history, but also glorified through our obedience, our fear, our faithfulness today. Lord, we offer ourselves to you We thank you for your promises of grace to us and all that you've given us through Christ. We pray that you'd be with us and fill us and strengthen us to walk in faith as we go from here. Amen.